ended up uh, with the U.S. Navy able to project power across the high seas. We took over the mantle of protection of the flow of trade. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Michelle Sicard, and I am joined today by my co-host, Alexis Holwinski. In today's episode, we'll have an important discussion on Bruce Jones's new book, Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Oceans Shapes the Fate of the Superpowers. What are the current tensions that exist in naval trade, and how has this become a part of the major powers agenda? How have oceans impacted transnational issues such as climate change, energy conservation, and military dominance? And finally, will there be a moment where oceans are no longer seen as up for grabs by nation states? Here to help us answer these questions and more is foreign policy scholar at the Brookings Institution, Dr. Bruce Jones. Dr. Jones is director and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution, where he also works with the Center for East Asia Policy Studies. His research focuses on U.S. strategy, international order, and great power relations, with his most recent book, To Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Oceans Shapes the Fate of the Superpowers, examining these in the context of naval power. This book is the starting point for our discussion today, and we are very excited to have its author come talk with us about it. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. In your recent book, To Rule the Waves, you reveal how globalization has increased the importance of oceans in geopolitics and military power. You state that about 93% of all data flows across fiber optic cables throughout our oceans, and about 85% of global commerce is now sea-based. What do you believe allows for this consistent dependency on our oceans? And do you see this as a benefit or detriment to our global economy? Right, so this has been an important evolution over the last several decades. If you go back to the immediate period after the end of the, Cold, after the, end of the Second World War, uh, and you looked at international trade, basically what you were looking at was flows of agricultural products and natural resources from South America up to the United States, from Africa up to Europe. There was very little trade between the two industrial centers at the time. That changed with the advent of bulk shipping and containerization, which was a, a sort of a mini change in industry that became a revolution in global, in global trade in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. Uh, at first, what that allowed for was a huge expansion of trade between the United States and Europe. Later, uh, Korea, Japan, the Asian Tigers, Singapore, etc., joined that process. And then, very importantly, China. What bulk shipping did over the course of that period is it dramatically reduced the costs of transportation, hugely increased the efficiency of transportation, and that essentially removed geography as a barrier to entry to the global economy. And it was really bulk shipping and containerization that facilitated, ultimately, the entry of China into globalization. What we've seen as a consequence is just this exponential growth in global trade alongside the global economy as a whole. The United States has profited from that much more than it's lost from that in economic terms. But of course, we're also increasingly conscious of the political consequences of globalization. Uh, an issue that I deal with briefly, at least in the book, is that if you look at the US economy now, we're about 30% dependent on global trade versus about 10% 30 or 40 years ago. But even more to the point, 
50% of all profits taken by American firms are in the financial sector. Those firms are, in effect, the financiers of global trade. Our economy is hugely dependent on the flow of global trade and the profits we make from servicing that trade. Uh, so we've profited from it in economic terms. Of course, there's also been the political disjuncture, uh, the political disruption that has come from a process of deindustrialization and the move of, of profit making to the kind of core financial and trading centers on, on America's coastlines. But in economic terms, there's no question that we've profited from globalization. Right. And in the realm of industrialization, what do you believe has changed most about the control states exude towards the oceans? How, in your opinion, have states been able to successfully claim territorial rights over such vast spaces? It's not really about claiming territorial rights, but since the end of the Cold War, uh, excuse me, since the end of the Second World War, the United States has been able to assert dominance on the high seas. That occurred. We were, in fact, the largest navy in the world from the early 1900s onwards, but the British Navy was still a very substantial fact in world affairs and had a network of bases and coaling stations that we at that time did not. But with the uh, substantial reduction in the in the weight of the British uh, British power over the course of the the First World War and then in the interwar period, and then having defeated another powerful navy, the Japanese, over the course of the Second World War, we ended up uh, with the U.S. Navy able to project power across the high seas. We took over the mantle of protection of the flow of trade. Uh, that was a modest mission in the first phase. It's grown hugely in importance. Uh, over time. And so it's it's less about you know, asserting claims. It's more about the fact of the capacity to maintain a global blue water navy. Uh, the Soviets developed something uh, resembling a global blue water navy. It wasn't anywhere nearly as capable as ours, uh, but it, they did eventually build a sizable fleet. That, of course, collapsed. And the big question that we're confronting now is whether or not China, as it's modernizing its military, as it's building out its navy at a ferocious pace, uh, at a pace uh, unmatched since we did something similar after Pearl Harbor, are they too aiming to develop a global blue water navy? And what are the consequences of that in addition to their already existing capacity to challenge us in the Western Pacific? So in addition to these changes in the behavior of nation states since World War II that you just outlined, uh, you also mentioned the impacts of bulk shipping and containerization on efficiency and trade. In addition to those two trends, are there any other innovations that you foresee influencing trade in the near future? Well, I, you know, you touched on technology earlier, um, and of course, quite a lot of what's happening in globalization right now is is the movement away from simply manufacturing goods and and trading goods and global supply chains in the in the, in the commercial and industrial goods sector to high technology goods themselves, software, smartphones, apps, etc. That we all spend all of our time with. But every time you use your smartphone. Every time you do online banking, every time you use your credit card, every time you listen to a podcast, every time a U.S. commander gives instructions to their troops, we're exchanging data. And 93% of all that data flows on undersea cables that crisscross the ocean floor. They are, to my mind, uh, globalization's most important and most vulnerable network. Um, but we're, So we're going to see, I think, uh, an increasing level of concern about the vulnerability of our of our data flows through undersea cables.
Thank you. So we also wanted to look a little bit more closely at a few of the key actors as well, not just the trends, but a few key actors um, in this global ocean arena. And one of these is obviously China. So keeping in mind your take that China is the country most vulnerable to an interruption of the flow of oil and gas by sea, could you explain what factors have placed them in this position? Right. So um, when China began to enter to open its economy in the late 80s and the early 90s for the sort of decline of the Cold War, uh, it really was bulk shipping that enabled them to import raw materials and export low-cost manufactured goods. Um, at that point, about 30% of their economy flowed in and out of the South and East China Seas. That's increased, not decreased, since something in the order of 60% of their oil and gas uh, flows come in by um, oil container and gas and gas uh, um, shipping through the Malacca Straits and then up through the South China Seas. So they're hugely dependent on those flows and they're acutely aware of being dependent on those flows and they're acutely aware of the reality that the United States, um, if you go back to let's say the late 1990s, early 2000s, the United States, which has long maintained dominance in the waters of the Western Pacific, was potentially in a position to choke off those flows. And that led to uh, a great deal of concern in China and a return to the high seas the first time in basically in 500 years. China withdrew from the high seas 500 years ago and it hasn't been there since. But concerned about this potential for the United States to choke off the flow of oil and gas and the flow of trade uh, into Chinese ports through the South China Sea, China began to invest in the naval capacity to engage in what it called a near seas defense. That is the Yellow Sea, the East China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, and the South China Sea. And it's been building its capability ever since. It's evolved its strategy. It now has a very high level of capability in the near seas and out past the near three seas through advanced missile technology. And it's begun to develop a strategy for what it calls the far seas, the farther reaches of the Western Pacific, uh, the Indian Ocean, and the Arctic. And it has an increasing scientific maritime presence in the Arctic and in the Southern Ocean. And the ocean sciences and the presence of uh, the ocean sciences and maritime strategy of the powers is another thing I talk about in the book, which I think we should be be paying attention to as we watch China develop this robust scientific capacity at sea. Thank you. Now, looking a little bit more domestically, you explained that the U.S. has frequently intervened in the global commons using military power to protect free trade and energy in open oceans. What do you believe keeps other nations from trying to adopt this approach and intervene in becoming another sort of protector for sea-based trade? Well, simply capacity. Uh, you know, nobody else right now has that capacity. I think China is seeking to develop it. And I think it's uh, th those issues, the ability to intervene, to stop uh, interruptions to sea-based trade, stop interruptions to the flow of oil and gas at sea, are an important part of Chinese strategy. I think that gets lost in some of the uh, U.S. strategic debate about China's military modernization. Uh, which is viewed primarily through the lens of the potential threat it poses to us and or uh, their ability to stop us from intervening in the Western Pacific. But at core, it seems to me, the primary motivation, at least in the first phase of their naval buildup, was really about protecting their flow of trade and stopping us 
from being able to choke it off. The, the challenge is that as they've developed that capability, it has gone further out. We know from history that power has its own appetite. Their ambitions have expanded. Uh, and the outer boundary of their ambitions now cross well into areas that we consider core to our defense. Uh, and so we have begun what is, for all intents and purposes, a very acute arms race in the Western Pacific, both in terms of naval buildup, submarine technology, missile technology, the application of artificial intelligence and quantum computing and other technologies to the naval sphere. Uh, ballistic missile defense, a whole range of, of suite of technologies at play. But we are in an arms race with the Chinese in the Western Pacific now. Okay. And in regards to this arms race, could you explain a little bit more about who seems to be ahead at this moment? You mentioned in your book how sometimes the U.S. may seem to have been falling behind China, lacking ownership of at least one of the top 10 largest ports in the world. Um, but how do you believe, how do you perceive this change and the status in the arms race. So I make a distinction here between naval power on the one hand and broader maritime capability. And here I'm casting back to some the work of a of a scholar named Alfred Thayer Mahan, who was the president of the U.S. Naval War College at the time when Theodore Roosevelt was Secretary of the Navy. He was a close friend of Roosevelt's, uh, and Roosevelt consulted him a lot when he was was president and really began the process of. Uh, building up an effective U.S. Navy after the Spanish-American War in the 18, 1860s. And Mahan always points, pointed out that it's one thing to have uh, a strong Navy. It's another thing to have a network of bases that allow you to maintain what he called sea lanes of communication or lines of communication between your outposts. But a whole other thing is to have a commercial basis for that naval power in the form of maritime trade. And it was really that commercial basis that first took us to Asia, first took us to the Middle East, uh, that began the process ultimately of American internationalization. And it's that connection between global commerce and global naval power that I think is in play once again in the case of China. At the level of naval capacity, we unquestionably still have the more powerful Navy in global terms. But if you look at the question of Navy to Navy competition in the Western Pacific on China's Eastern boundaries, where 50% of the world economy happens, uh, then of course, China has a massive geographical advantage over us. And that tends to equal out some of the scale advantages we have. Now, even at scale advantages, they now have more surface fighting ships than we do, but many of them are much less powerful than ours. We have more powerful ships, we have more missile launching capacity, we have more aircraft on our aircraft carriers, our ships are more sophisticated, etc. Uh, but the geographical advantage is very real. Um, and then in one domain, which is anti-ship missile technology, I would say that they have clearly surpassed us. They have tested missiles, successfully tested missiles that we cannot defend adequately against. They have successfully tested missile delivery systems that we have not yet mastered. We have trial, tried and failed so far to uh, successfully test some of the systems that they have successfully tested. So in that particular domain, missile technology, which is very relevant to the domain of naval competition, I think they have now uh, surpassed the United States, perhaps not permanently. Uh, but they have certainly taken the lead in that one particular domain. 
Great. And taking a more modern look on this race, how has artificial intelligence and the race in automation impacted the current race on naval power and the various players involved? Yeah. So one of the themes I try to develop in the book is that contemporary naval warfare is a very high technology business. Um, I think a lot of people who've read their Patrick O'Brien or their British Imperial history, when you talk about naval naval clashes and people have the image of a, you know, a French gunship and a British ship of the line exchanging cannon fire at 300 paces or something along those lines. But that's not at all what we're talking about. Modern ships uh, are first and foremost the holders of the most sophisticated radar in the world. They are collectors of vast quantities of intelligence linked via satellite to massive uh, land computing stations. The largest computing station in the world is Naval Computing Station in, in Hawaii, uh, linked to our Pacific fleet. They are vast uh, collectors of sensory data, of sonar data, etc. They are platforms for the launch of long-range missiles and aircraft strikes. And they are the source of defense against ballistic missiles, nuclear missiles, uh, and other long-range strike um, vehicles. Uh, they w can operate together with air power. And U.S. doctrine in the Western Pacific now is organized around something that used to be called uh, air-sea battle. Its name has evolved, but essentially is about the integration of air power, sea power, uh, and technology. That's an awful lot of data that's flowing back and forth between ships and weapon systems and satellites. The ability to use artificial intelligence uh, and very high-end computing capability to process that data more quickly, to turn radar information into targeting information. Uh, that is the domain where artificial intelligence is helping and where the United States still has a lead although it's a lead that is eroding quickly as China's uh, investment in AI is starting to really pay off in the military domain. Now, to take a step back and look broadly, we wanted to zero in on the topic of climate change, as it's something that has tangible effects not only on the U.S. and China, but also on all of the world's countries and waterways. So you explained that, that a changing climate is a prominent geopolitical struggle that has placed oceans at the forefront of today's power concerns. So could you briefly explain this premise to our listeners? Right. So first of all, um, it's important to establish that the oceans are the great climate st stabilizer. Our world would be substantially hotter than it is now were it not for the role that the oceans play in absorbing the excess heat produced by the burning of fossil fuels. And the estimate is that over the course of the last 50 or so years, roughly 90% of the excess heat produced by the burning of oil and gas has been absorbed by the oceans uh, and produces this uh, phenomenon where the uh, carbon is sort of accumulated within the, within the chemistry of the oceans themselves. But that is beginning to change the chemistry of the oceans. It is warming the oceans. Uh, it is melting the sea ice in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. And those phenomena taken together are perhaps the most destabilizing phenomenon in our changing climate. The scenarios out over 100 years, if you take the kind of worst end of the, of the projections, get very extreme. Um, but even in the shorter term and even at more moderate projections, uh, we're going to see substantial sea level rise. Uh, they're going to see substantial effects of that in terms of the interplay between more frequent storms, um, storm surges, 
uh, and sea level rise together, um, causing substantial problems of flooding and inundation along uh, along coastlines. We've witnessed that before in history, but not at the pace and not at the scale, and not when such a huge portion of humanity was living along uh, the coastlines. Um, that is a vast global problem. The challenge that I point to in the book is that whereas in the climate community, it is usually taken that because this is a global problem, it's going to generate global cooperation. What I find is that that's not what's happening, that the short term challenges, the the shorter term adaptation, the shorter term ways, the shorter term impact of ocean warming is driving competition. Uh, we have fisheries uh, losing viability in the South China Sea because of warming oceans, but gaining viability in the Arctic. Um, and that's a source of tension and competition. In, in all sorts of different ways, we see the disruption coming out of short-term climate change uh, or the short-term changes associated with the warming climate adding to competition between the powers versus this dynamic which we would have hoped to have seen of collaboration on mitigation. We may still see some sort of diplomatic collaboration on, on the mitigation of climate change, but for the next several decades, the, the warming already baked into the system is going to be playing out in increasingly disruptive changes. And those changes, I believe, are going to play into and amplify uh, geopolitical tensions. Do you think there's like a point at which um, all of this conflict could translate into forces for international cooperation on climate change, especially with, with regard to what you've explained about com competition over the seas? You know, so uh, I wish that the answer to that question was yes. Uh, I think the answer to the question might be yes if we started to see very concrete signs that some of the worst scenarios were already in play, but that will take some time. Um, and unfortunately, once we see they're in play, they're already baked in. I mean, we, you know, we're trying to operate here on the basis of projections uh, and vision and leadership, and those are qualities that are somewhat lacking in the world right now. And the the tensions between the major players and and the very different interests: India, Russia, Japan, China, the United States, all have very different interests in how this plays out. And so far, unfortunately, those interests seem to be uh, displacing. Uh, cooperation. So I confess I'm not optimistic about cooperation. I think what we have to do instead is recognize that tension and distrust are going to be the baseline realities. We have to think about climate change uh, a little bit like the way we thought about nuclear weapons, that we want to avoid catastrophic outcomes. And therefore, we need to uh, have a series of limitation mechanisms with people we distrust. In that case, it was nuclear weapons to the Soviets. In this case, it's the burning of fossil fuels with all the major economies. But I don't think to think about it as a zone of cooperation is going to get us very far anymore. So to conclude and base this question off of the tensions that you've just described, you utilize the metaphor of the calm before a sort of tsunami to describe the current times we are living in, where sudden changes in naval power and sea trade are unpredictable and possibly catastrophic. What do you believe are the most important trends that countries should be attuned to while navigating the world of sea trade? Right. So when I had that image of a, of a tsunami in mind, and I think you know the, 
way they work, there's a, an earthquake or an explosion in one part of the ocean and the shock of that moves swiftly across the ocean floor, but might be barely visible at all on the ocean surface. And then as it's approaching land, it sort of sucks the oceans back out to sea and then comes crashing on land. And I think of that when I think about the possibility of strategic conflict between the United States and China, who, unlike the United States and the Soviet Union, are also the two largest economies within a single economic system, uh, which was not at all true, of course, of the U.S. and the Soviets. And so we might find ourselves, and very soon, in a militarized clash that would be profoundly disruptive to global trade, uh, vastly more so than war with the Soviets would have been, at least if it had stayed uh, short of nuclear war. Uh, And I don't think we're ready for that at all. I don't think we're ready for the reality that for the first time in several hundred years, a, a country that is neither democratic nor liberal will be the richest country in the world. We're not ready for China to challenge American global hegemony at sea. But all of this is in front of us. And then take something which sounds more simple, like submarine warfare. We're already in a very tense set of submarine uh, exchanges, so to speak, uh, or, you know, sort of movements and shadowing games with the Chinese fleet in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the LLC. Uh, they have nuclear weapons on their submarines, so do we. Our nucle- submarines are nuclear powered, some of theirs are. Um, they have reinvested in a technology that we had uh, during the Cold War, which is the use of nuclear weapons at sea to um, impede. Uh, the passage of our our submarine fleet. These are already in play. This is not some distant future scenario if if relations between us and the Chinese worsen. This is already at play. And it's at play in waters that are extraordinarily crowded. Um, Indo-PACOM, Indo-Pacific Command, estimates at any one time there are 200 submarines sailing in the South China Sea, which is a very shallow water. Uh, We have serious tensions in the Taiwan Strait, uh, we have broader tensions in the Western Pacific. This can escalate extremely rapidly. Uh, and in the way that I described before, we're not talking about a, a limited naval clash at sea. This very rapidly escalates to the point where we're engaged in airstrikes on the Chinese mainland. They're engaged in cyber and other kinds of attacks on our space systems. And very quickly, we're at risk of the use of or invocation of nuclear weapons at sea. Uh, in very dangerous ways. And so I think that there's just a great deal of danger stoked into the current system that we haven't really come to grips with. We're increasingly aware of the challenge that China poses, but we, I don't think we've come to grips with the scale of uh, immediate danger, let alone the way that that uh, set of tensions is going to likely impede our ability to really get a handle on climate change. And keeping these rising tensions in mind, is it too late for nation states to act and prevent this sort of tsunami tsunami catastrophe that you described from happening? Um, If so, how could we avoid these tensions? Right, so I'm I'm an optimist about such issues. I believe that diplomacy can make a, a big difference as long as it's backed by strategy. Uh, I've never been a believer in the use of diplomacy without strategy or the use of strategy without diplomacy. Um, In the case of China's growing naval and technological power, I end the book by arguing that we need to do two things. 
we need to build a new naval and technological alliance that can counter Chinese power uh, in the Western Pacific and deter some of their more dangerous actions. But at the same time, I sort of reluctantly conclude we also need to try to remake globalization away from the dependence of our supply lines and our uh, global supply chains on Chinese manufacturing, on Chinese low-cost goods. Um, that can only be done, I think, by finding another low-cost producer, which is most likely to be India. And there are other reasons to be collaborating with India on the China challenge. But I think we have to understand that we're now in a, in a very different world, uh, that China is seeking to develop a capability to project itself uh, globally, seeking to be a, a major player in the shaping of globalization the way that the British were during their rounded empire, the way we have been in the uh, period since the end of the Second World War. Uh, not all of that is inimical to our interests, but enough of it is, and the tensions between us and the distrust between us is enough that we have to now start retooling our alliances, as well as investing in the diplomacy of deconfliction, of arms control at sea, of crisis management at sea, um, to avoid accidental or undue escalation between our two nations. We appreciate your time and thank you again for joining us, Dr. Jones. Pleasure being with you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.